Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast that is definitely not losing its grip. I don't know where you heard that. Then <laughs> We're in the peak health. I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet this week's panel. It's hello to commentator Alex Andreu. Hi, Dorian. Alex, the government has backed so-called Harper's Law, named after PC Andrew Harper, who was killed while trying to apprehend three quad bike thieves in 2019. The law would introduce mandatory life sentences for anyone guilty of killing an on-duty emergency worker while committing a crime. What do you make of this principle of treating some victims differently, which is not uh, which is not entirely new? There's already some legislation around uh, mm. crimes against emergency workers. Um, look, the circumstances of Andrew Harper's death are horrific, and there is nothing more understandable than you know the grief and anger felt by Lissy Harper. But jurisprudence is sort of littered with unintended consequences of laws created off the back of one-off cases. The change as currently drafted is based on a misunderstanding of the law. So manslaughter covers a huge spread of circumstances. And this change shoehorns together a case like Andrew Harper's, which is really as close to murder as you can get with manslaughter, with everything else from someone killing a firefighter on duty while driving recklessly or a drunk taking a a swing at an ambulance worker who loses their footing and falls down or, importantly, let's say a victim of abuse suffering from PTSD like battered person syndrome, killing her policeman partner where a defence of provocation or diminished responsibility is actively employed by lawyers to reduce a murder to manslaughter because it attracts a, a more flexible um, that, range of sentences. But sure, does the on-duty question not come into play there? Like, surely if you are married to an emergency worker, would that not be a different case? Not if you killed them while they were on duty. It creates a strict liability offence that says if you're, if you're, like I said, if a drunk takes a swing at an ambulance worker, which happens a lot, you know, and that person falls down and cracks their uh, head open. Now, I'm not minimizing any of those crimes. I'm just saying that putting them all together in the same compulsory mm. sentence tariff is just a weird thing to do. And it doesn't work as a deterrent either because the central difference between murder and manslaughter, I mean, there are exceptions, but it's intent. So sentencing works as a, a, a deterrent quite poorly, even for planned crime, and it does nothing for unplanned mm. crime. I just hope by the time it gets to the Lords, they can shape it and redraft it into something useful because it's not at the moment. It just isn't. Naomi Smith is Chief Executive at Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hello. There's pressure on podcast fave Pretty Patel this week <laughs> over migrants crossing the English Channel. Uh, the number has never been higher. Steve Barclay is being put in charge of a cross-governmental task force to deal with this. And reportedly, the 1922 committee gave Johnson a harder time over channel crossings last week than it did over the Sleaze scandal. Is this an unprecedented case of Patel not being draconian enough for the party? Yes, um, but not for lack of trying. These people are never happy. And I should just add that as we came into the studio to record, there was breaking news that uh, it sounds like more than 20 people have perished in the channel today with a capsized boat. Um, And and these these are people who are dying for the chance of life. You know, you can imagine what horrors you are leaving behind if you are prepared to risk 
your family's life and your own for that. I think this is all about Tory backbenchers just living in constant fear of the re-emergence of Farage um, and the prospect of him outflanking them on the right. And of course... Are some of them not perhaps sincerely racist? Well, (laughs) yes, but they know that... Well. Yes, yes, they give the, are. Give they them are. credit for yep, the sincerity yep, yep. of their dislike for migrants. True, um, uh, but they don't want to lose out to somebody even more racist. And this week we did see Nigel Farage pop back up saying, well, Conservative Party donors are asking me if I'm going to run again and I'm going to have to you know, seriously think about mm. what I do. So no matter what horrible thing Patel does to these poor people, Farage will inevitably say she isn't being horrible enough. And so to to those racist backbenchers, I say to them that he is like a a racist boomerang and he's going to come back no matter what you do. As sure as eggs is eggs, he will do it ahead of every election. So there's no point worrying about how you can prevent it. And you also needn't worry about his return because he will do what he always does, which is then again stand down candidates just before an election if it looks like they are at at peril of losing their seats to Labour or the Lib Dems. Why is this without buying into sort of their their framing you know obviously like just being tough uh, is not enough why is this a difficult issue on a practical level what would be a hopefully humane solution well obviously i'm not a member of the coast guard or border force or an expert on maritime law or you know international displacement of people but i think there are several main difficulties one there is disagreement on the interpretation of maritime law between the french and british authorities the french often erring on the side of caution of intercepting boats because of the danger it poses to life as we have seen um and the duty to render assistance and protect life at sea remains paramount to them Patel, of course, has no such reservations and has even talked about bigger ships creating waves to try and you know, deter these, these dinghies from making the crossing. Second, um, these people have not been deterred by the horrendous uh, lethal crossing, the, the potential dangers um, that we've seen you know, borne out in the loss of life time and time again, which really should tell you something about the horrors from which they are fleeing. So a deterrent strategy is just misguided. Talk to the Americans. They literally separated children from parents, put them in cages, and that still did not deter desperate people from crossing the border. And finally, this is about criminal gangs. This is also about coordinated criminal gangs. And any police officer will tell you that as soon as you think of a way to prevent crime, smart criminals criminals devise a way mm. around it. And there's another reason why deterrents are probably misguided. And, you know, I just think this is only going to get worse because of climate change and climate change displacement is real. And if you're the kind of racist who is concerned about refugees, then really you need to be the number one champion against climate change because when sea levels rise and drought persists, more and more displaced people will be headed for our shores. I I, I would like to see the article, which is the racist's case for uh, climate action on climate change. Look, you know, it's, it, I'm telling you, this is it should be a new podcast. <laughs> it's, a, it's a broad coalition. Gavin Esler is a journalist and author of How Britain Ends, English Nationalism and the Rebirth of Four Nations. Hi, Gavin. Hello. Andrew Mars announced he's leaving the BBC, departing his show on Sunday mornings after 16 years. Uh, You know the BBC well. Uh, Who do you think will or just should replace him? Well, Andrew is a great journalist and uh, a wonderful writer, a very clever guy and uh, a great broadcaster. But I have to say, on 
I've never watched his show. I don't watch TV on Sunday mornings. I never quite under, this isn't a religious observance, but I just don't get the point. So I have no idea who would like to give up their weekends to do this. I'm sure it will be somebody <laughs> who's, who's, who's excellent at it, but I won't really notice. I mean, what happens on Sunday mornings is various kind of retreads from, from a, a government appear. And if they say anything interesting in the unlikely event, you get a clip at the six o'clock news. But I have to ask myself, as I did about 10, 15 years ago when I stopped watching these shows, what of it ever lasts till Monday morning? And I can't think of anything. So whoever gets the job, good luck to them. Well, I think he's a, he's a fantastic writer um, and a less good interviewer. So I suppose my my feeling is that the point of the if this show does have a point and I never watch politics on Sunday mornings that sounds seems like a terrible time <laughs> to engage with politics. Um, so we don't know what we're talking we, about. We do need somebody tougher. But you know when you see when you I do obviously see clips and then I watch some of the interviews later, um, and I just I feel like just go for somebody that can really really pin people because that seems to be the the the, the benefit of that particular format. Yeah, I, I suppose. I suppose so. I mean, I, I just, I, I just don't get the Sunday morning TV sitting in front of the TV idea at all. So I, I suppose pinning people down and and so on. But we are in the kind of the age of the bloviator. So what you get is um, is various degrees of nonsense now <laughs> from from a lot of the people who appear on talk shows. So you you could be right that it does occasionally happen. It happens in Newsnight. I think Emily Maitlis is great. I can't imagine she'd want to give up her weekends, but there's no dearth of talent. Mm. Um, I, I just don't really get the point of those programs. Alex and Naomi, do you watch uh, Mar on Sundays? I do, um, largely because I feel I have to. It's sort of part of my job to be over government missives and you know who they're wheeling out and why mm. and why they've thrown somebody out to do the news round that is having to defend the indefensible yeah, so, I, yeah do, I do i do i like too. sophie ridge as well yeah. I, think I, should. I i love sophie ridge and i really miss her because she's on maternity leave i don't think trevor phillips is quite the right replacement um i i hope she comes back so, soon because she really did used to pin them gosh there we go, Gavin. We've been shamed. <laughs> we, 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 have, we, have, we have been shamed. There's us enjoying our Sunday morning. I, 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 I will make, make a note on a Sunday to um, think about getting up and watching it. <laughs> this week on the show, we consider Boris Johnson's transformation into Daddy Pig and whether the social care vote shows that he's losing control of his own party as well as his speeches. Plus, we look at rising opposition to lockdowns in Europe as countries react to a fourth wave of COVID. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, this week at the Conservative Party Winter Ball, downtime with ministers was not, as you might expect, a punishment, (laughs) but a treat (laughs) worth up to £35,000. If there were an Oh God, What Now Christmas ball, how would the panel put themselves up for auction? Before we get started, don't forget that our festive live show on the 8th of December is only two weeks away. I will dispense with gags in this advertisement. You've heard them all. My jolly tone should stand in for gags. There are a few tickets left, so visit com to get yours. And Patreon people, remember, your ticket discount still works. I would say... This is what you do in conversation as well. You just say, well, I think my jolly tone should stand in for gags. (laughs) (laughs) You do have a jolly tone. First this week, the leaders of both main parties were at the annual conference of the CBI on Monday. 
Boris Johnson frequently lost his place in an erratic performance that had even the spectator asking, is Boris Johnson OK? <laughs> and number 10 sources insisting that he's fine, honestly. Alex, in the past, Johnson has regularly winged it with big speeches. And according to Jeremy Vine, he once brought the house down with just six minutes notice. Uh, like Phil Dunphy in an episode of Modern <laughs> Family that I saw last night. Um, what seemed to go wrong this time? Uh, but m- many of our listeners will know that portion, the apocryphal half version of that Jeremy Vine story where Johnson did that. Um, but the point of the full Jeremy Vine story was actually quite a different one because Vine saw Johnson give another after-dinner speech some months later and the exact same shtick the lateness, every word, every gesture, every gaffe was repeated. The dishevelled lack of preparation was not genuine. It was part of a very precisely calibrated act. That was the whole point of the Jeremy Vine story. And that act added to the entertainment. And that is precisely the problem here. Business leaders turning up for the PM's keynote address to the CBI conference are not there to be entertained. What do you think he was he think he was doing exactly what he intended no, to do but I the think wrong audience? He's, I think he's used to that kind of public speaking and he has failed to realize the power and gravity of his position, which means that a stray word can st- send pound sterling spiraling. And I I think he hasn't grasped that. And so business leaders are there to gauge policy and direction, which makes Johnson's clowning very worrying, not just because of the lack of content, but because of his strategic decision to turn up unprepared and try to wing it to the business community. Okay, it's basically another form of saying fuck you to business. Which, of course, he did. That's what that's how it would be perceived his failure to distinguish between the keynote speech to the CBI and an after dinner engagement that's, that's seems, the whole point that seems like a yeah that seems like a strange mistake to make like turning up and doing like a best man speech at a funeral like <laughs> most people do have a sense of audience but that's the point he's used to getting away with it because he can insert entertainment he can insert comedy value in place of content. Yeah, but so the- if he's in a situation where all he's asked to deliver is content, he struggles. Yeah, but he, for example, opening COP, like that was a decent speech. He wasn't wanking on about Peppa Pig world there. You know, he, he delivered the, we talked discussed this at the time. Well, you know, it's about actions, not words. Nonetheless, the words were coherent. So he can do it. It's not like he's constitutionally incapable of delivering a proper speech. I guess the difference is how long before he started preparing for it and whether he thought an international occasion where the eyes of world leaders are on him, he took that a, a little bit more seriously than the CBI conference. I thought prime ministers had speech writers, I must admit. Mm, I, not Johnson. Uh, on all accounts, he only uh, accepts writing his own staff, his own stuff, sorry, and because of the amount of work he has to do, it's often very last minute. Um, I would try using some help. 
Starmer's speech to the CBI made reference to Johnson's fuck business remarks from the Brexit years, saying, uh, and this but this did bring the house down because it's very <laughs> droll, I can promise you that the only F words I will be using are foreign investment, fair trade, <laughs> fiscal policy and fiduciary duty. <laughs> uh, one of many great jokes oh, begins with the phrase delight. fiduciary duty. What a delight. Now, Starmer has said that Labour won't throw cash at the country's problems, while Rachel Reeves says they'll have a tough approach to public finances with a new Office of Value for Money. Um, sounds like my, well, my mum would introduce. <laughs> um, we can buy our own brand. It'll be, fine. It'll be fine. It's the same product. They just put different labels on it. Uh, we all know the arguments for borrowing to invest and resisting austerity logic. So is this uh, a necessary electoral evil or just cowardice or, you know, or a real lack of imagination on the economy? I, I think it's all quite smartly targeted within Starmer's limitations. Because it makes a virtue out of his weaknesses, which which is that he's very dry and dull. And so the gamble he's taking is saying to people, when the time comes for you to make a choice, you can choose the entertainment value of the utter chaos or this boring, technocratic, but quite steady hand. And it's basically the Biden strategy. I mean, the risk with it is that it relies on your opponent. So it relies on... Uh, number 10, the party, and Johnson himself continuing this sort of toboggan ride down Everest in a yeah. in a sleigh made of shit. But in terms of the policy, I don't think we agree with the... I, well, sorry, I don't want to speak for you. I do not agree with that policy. We've talked about all the kind well, of well, well, economists on the left going, well, actually, you don't need to, you know... You don't need to sort of do this austerity light rhetoric, and it is actually but fine. It, but they haven't done that. They, they haven't done that. I would challenge that. They're not saying they're not going to spend. They're saying they're going to spend very smartly and shrewdly. And who could have a problem with that? So they're shifting everything essentially back to the accusations of corruption and chamocracy. Right, yeah, yeah. So that every time there's a story about, you know, someone uh, giving a contract for three billion for drones to their local tobacconist, they can say, you see, the money's there, but they're just not spending it right. Gavin, back to Johnson. The Sun and Telegraph report that uh, around a dozen Tory MPs have submitted letters of no confidence to the 1922 committee. That's well short of the 52 needed for a leadership challenge, but something is going on. Do you think it is primarily sort of aftershocks of the Owen Patterson fiasco or, or lots of moving parts? I think there's lots of moving parts, but I, um, I was very struck by a Hansard Society poll a couple of years ago, which said that 54% of the British people wanted some kind of mould-breaking politician who <laughs> would be a rule-breaker to get things done. <laughs> and what we have got is we have got somebody who has broken various things, including moulds, uh, and we have to ask ourselves, why do we? Why are we surprised at this? You know, uh, one of the words I hate in in commentators' uh, discourse is that someone is authentic and say it as if it's praise. I mean, some people are authentically shits, and some people are authentically just not good at the job. And what we have is somebody who is authentic uh, and is constantly the same uh, as you would expect him to be, and sometimes a little bit worse, sometimes a little bit better. Lord Haig uh, wrote a piece in the Times uh, a day or two ago 
in which he said, here's four or five things Boris Johnson could do to basically get his act together. And Lord Haig, I admire uh, considerably. He's got a very big brain. He, he, um, he works very hard. He thinks a lot. But those four or five things are things that Lord Haig would do. They are not things that Boris Johnson would do, because what you see is what you get, which is someone who is slapdash, someone who doesn't do the work. I happen to be with a, a very senior diplomat on the day that Boris Johnson essentially got Nazanin Zagari Radcliffe more years in jail. And this Foreign Office Mandarin, who I'd known for years and is very, very polite, came out with a string of swear words about Boris Johnson. He doesn't read his papers. He doesn't listen to briefs. He doesn't do anything within the broad norms you would expect from somebody who is in a position of a great minister of state. So that's what people voted for. And we can hardly be surprised that that's what we've got. And I don't think he's going to change. So the Conservative MPs who rub up against him um, either have to just suck it up or get rid of him. But if they get rid of him, it will look as if they're getting rid of him, not because he's wrecked the country or not because Brexit's a complete disaster or because he's, he's fundamentally useless, but because he is actually doing something which they don't like, which is potentially limiting their ability to mm. make money mm. on, on side hustles. Yep. So that's where we are. And But he is authentic. Another thing that uh, the Johnson is obviously famous for is making grand promises. Johnson has just cancelled the eastern branch of HS2 and watered down Northern Powerhouse Rail. So we know that he overpromises and underdelivers. Why is this one actually hurting him? Do you think it's just generally like... That what you were saying that the, the Tory is sort of well aware of his weaknesses, but when he's sort of when he's doing well, they just ignore them, and as soon as he's vulnerable, they start pointing out, they start complaining about things that they knew were there all along. Well, there's two things about the way in which this fiasco of HS2 has been handled. The first is it could have been handled as a success. We are spending all this money to connect major cities all over the place. And we are talking quite rightly about why Leeds and other places, uh, Bradford in particular, I've just, just been to Bradford recently. And for a great city, communications are terrible. So the communication strategy, if they've got one, uh, is a bit of a shambles. And the, the, the facts of this are also a shambles because he overpromises and eventually people notice that, you know, we can go and walk over the garden bridge, but you actually end up in the Thames, or we can go and see the airport that was built on the Thames estuary, except it wasn't. And my favourite one is the, I can't remember whether it was a bridge or a tunnel, I think it was been both at various points has between Northern Ireland and the sort of stand <laughs> You know, uh, but but people have accepted it, and it's been kind of priced in to, uh, to, to Boris Johnson as an entertainer. Now, I, I find it appalling. <laughs> I think it is absolutely sickening that this country has, has got to such a stage. But the only people who can get rid of them are the Conservative MPs. No, I mean, meanwhile, in Parliament, the vote on a government amendment to its social care reforms did not go to plan. 19 Tory MPs voted against the new social care cap, which would disproportionately affect poorer pensioners, and 70 abstained, leaving a majority of just 26 uh, when you take into account uh, some pairing. Is there a pattern to the rebels, Naomi? Is it like a certain kind of MP? No, and that's his big problem because he's under attack from all quarters and that makes it incredibly difficult for him to buy them all off because they're from different wings of the party, they've got different motivations and demands. So let me just rattle through some of the groups quickly. 
So first of all, you've got the scorned former ministers, very unlikely to be brought back into a Johnson-led cabinet. So we're talking about people like Jeremy Hunt, Robert Buckland, Theresa May. Mm. There are those tipped for future success within the party, like Tom Tugendhat. And of course, there are the Red Wallers smarting from everything that Gavin's just been telling us about Johnson's rail betrayal. You've got the Christian C-word Wakeford and Jake Berry, who are also uh, hurting from their forced compliance on the Owen Patterson uh, sleaze vote. There's the libertarian lockdown sceptics like Mark Harper and Chris Green, who will use any chance to throw the boot at him. Uh, And now you can add other friends of Owen Patterson like Ian Duncan Smith. Um, There's the fiscal conservatives, the right wingers like Esther McVeigh and Andrew Rossendale, who hate all of the tax rises and socialist spending levels. There are the Remainer centrists right on the other part of the party who oppose him on Brexit. They sound like the street gangs in The Warriors. (laughs) (laughs) When you're a gent. You know the Warriors when the DJ's calling out all the names. So centrist remainers like Stephen Hammond and Bob Neal. There are those with very special interests that are pissed off with Johnson, like Andrew Mitchell, who's crossed about foreign aid cuts. You've got Johnny Mercer, who fell out with the whips over veterans. Mm. Stephen McPartland, who's furious about the cladding scandal. And Douglas Ross, the leader in Scotland, who knows that they're headed for further defeat in uh, in north of the border. And of course, so you've got perennial troublemaker Christopher Chope. So it, it is from literally every part of the party uh, that he's got enemies now. Yeah. Chope, it's obviously. a scattergram rather than a, <laughs> rather than a curve. Angela Rayner called the amendment, which breaks the pledge that nobody would have to sell their home to pay for care, an inheritance tax on the north, which is not strictly accurate, but it's a very good phrase. Mm. Could this, I mean, the dementia tax, of course, was politically toxic because it was in a manifesto and it was unfolding during an election campaign. Yeah. This is not. No. How dangerous do you think it could be? Well, I mean, I think Angela's got a point because it's just another example of how hollow that levelling up slogan is being exposed to be. And it's a policy that disproportionately benefits people in areas where the most common asset, which, of course, is is property, is worth more. So the very basics of the plan are that after you put in 86000 to pay for your care, the local authority picks up the rest. And, that mean, and all of that is means tested unless your spouse lives there. So your house can and will be counted as an asset if you live there alone to be sold to contribute to, towards the cost of reaching that £86,000 cap. But if your spouse lives there, then it's not. And the point... Rayner is making is that if you live in Burnley, where the average house price is 120,000, you're going to be left with 34,000 or 28% of your assets to leave an inheritance to anyone after you die. If you live in London, where the average house price is 650,000, you'll be left with 564,000 or 86% of your assets to leave to kids. So most older homeowners in London probably paid substantially less than their current value. And so, yes, they are going to benefit from the system, from this historical imbalance. Mm, of investment mm. in the south versus the north. So if it is going to become politically toxic with anyone, it's going to be lesser well-off Conservative voters outside of London who are going to be smarting from this. And we know that Conservative voters tend to be older and therefore more likely to be really thinking about the effects of this in the you know short to medium term for themselves. Is, is this bill likely to be kicked about in the Lords? I don't know, to be honest. Um, I follow a lot of the awful bills that are going through at the moment. I haven't got a sort of strong read of the whip count on this one. Um, but the average age of the House of Lords is, let's say, somewhat more mature than the Commons. So I, I will expect pretty robust mm. scrutiny there. Alex, are we now seeing evidence of the discipline that Dominic Cummings brought to number 10? Uh, <laughs> we hate to give him credit, um, but without him, Johnson does seem far more chaotic. Yeah, I mean, 
the the point about Cummings was that he instilled this really bolshy attitude in number 10, we don't apologize for nothing. But he had the nerve to back it up by sticking to it. And now they've been left with the attitude of saying, screw you all, I'm going to do what I want. But the spine has collapsed. So the moment there's any trouble, the U-turn on stuff. And conservative MPs on the social care bill will be thinking about that in three or four weeks' time when it comes back. If the government asks them to, uh, let's say the Lords have made an amendment, the, the government asks them to go back to the original text, that they don't accept it, there will be a lot of MPs that will be thinking, is he marching us up another hill only yeah. to leave us up there two hours later by making a statement to the Telegraph that says, were you turning on this? We, The government has listened. That's a big problem for government discipline. And no one wants an analogy with the Duke of York these days. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, last year, we got carried away and prematurely did a next leader sweepstakes. Uh, but it, it feels a little, we're not going to do it again, but it feels a little more justified now. Um, Kevin, he's we, in trouble, you know. He, I mean, he is in I trouble. Think he, 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 did you watch PMQs today? Yep. He, you know, whips did not march MPs into the chamber and tell them to sort of cheer hysterically for everything. Allegedly, he they says, begged them. They unless, unless they think the the prime minister is in real trouble, the sight of them cheering him will, would have been a fantastic news for the opposition. I would think. Uh, Gavin, would you like to hazard a guess as to Johnson's successor if the 1922 committee were to pull the plug? Well, I mean, you know, everybody talks about Rishi Sunak. I think what will be interesting is how long Johnson hangs on for, because the longer he hangs on, I think the more difficult the economy will become. And Rishi giving away lots and lots of money in the uh, coronavirus may look very different in a year's time. The one I think has a good chance still is Jeremy Hunt. I think he is biding his time. He is uh, quite rightly not in the not not in the cabinet of disasters. You know, <laughs> I, I was I was thinking the other day. We, I was watching the Blair Brown stuff on television, and I was thinking, oh, Brown had a, had goats, didn't he? Uh, government of uh, all the talents, all the talents. Yeah. and they had some talented people, some presumably less talented. But this is a government of gonads, you know, government <laughs> of no actual decision-making <laughs> skills. They are really a bunch of gonads. So if you're out of the government, I think you've got a much better chance of uh, getting in than being in the government. And even though Rishi Sunak is is considerably more talented than some of the others, I suspect it might be somebody who is not. Uh, touched by the toxic Boris Brown. I think perhaps you 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 have uh, too much confidence in the um, in the average Tory party member, <laughs> and <laughs> I just feel like Liz Truss seems more likely to oh, be pressing God, their no. buttons. <laughs> their Thatcherite G spot. Oh, you could be right, but I'm of course uh, an optimist. You're an optimist. <laughs> an optimist. Jeremy Hunt is only the optimist scenario. <laughs> Uh, well, it's better than, better than the others, it seems yeah. to me, but there we are. Uh, let's round off with a little game. Boris Johnson's speech included comparing himself to Moses and referring to himself in the third person, <laughs> which reminded me of another famous rhetorician. Uh, so let's play Boris or Kanye. <laughs> uh, who said what? Um, okay, first, I don't have a manager. I can't be managed. Kanye, surely. Kanye. It's easy to make promises. It's hard work to keep them. 
<laughs> that should be Boris. But, it uh, is. It is. So at least he knows. In relation to wedding vows or whatever. <laughs> Never in my life did I think I would be congratulated by Mick Jagger for achieving anything. I think that might be Johnson, actually. I know, I know. I think I'm going for Johnson. It is Johnson. I don't know what Mick Jagger congratulated him on, (laughs) Uh, but apparently something. I feel like I'm too busy writing history to read it. Kanye. Even though Boris Johnson literally (laughs) writes history. (laughs) Well, he writes. I'm not sure he writes history. (laughs) My message isn't perfectly defined. I have, as a human being, fallen to peer pressure. Kanye. Johnson. Kanye. It is. It's Kanye. Uh, there are no disasters, only opportunities. Johnson, <laughs> surely. Both of them. That's Johnson. And uh, I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. <laughs> all time. No, I'm joking. <laughs> we didn't keep score, but I think I won that. I think, I think, everybody, I think everybody did pretty well. Now, continental Europe is currently facing a fourth wave of COVID infections and restrictions. Austria, which has one of the lowest rates of vaccination in Western Europe, has made vaccinations a legal requirement and gone back into lockdown, triggering heavy protests over the weekend. There have been riots in both Belgium and the Netherlands. Naomi, the UK's infection rates have been up and down since the summer unlocking. It's, it's sort of been quite hard to follow, while in Europe the curve has been fairly steep and consistent. What seems to be the main factor here? Well, when you're starting from a very low base and restriction ease and your infection rates start to climb, they climb more steeply because Mm. you're you're coming from a lower base than when you've been hovering around the 40,000 daily infections for many weeks, if not a couple of months now. So the absolute numbers just shouldn't be forgotten. And Austria has gone back into lockdown when its rates have reached 14,000 a day. We have had absolutely no reimposition of any controls, despite rates being three times that here. But isn't our population significantly higher than Austria's? Looking at it on a per population basis, we still have reached the same rates several times over the last few we're months. We're still number one. Yeah, yeah. 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 Still well beating. Yeah, we're still, still number well one. Okay. Not, not, quite, <laughs> not quite to that magnitude, right. but, yeah. but it's like twice. Got it. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and look, overall deaths in the UK are still significantly higher mm. per capita than the rest of Europe. So when the government, you know, is saying we need to learn to live with the virus, for a lot of people it meant learning to die with the virus for lots of families. But but what, I mean, I suppose, is, is what is causing this? We don't what's, know. What's happening in we Europe? We don't know. We don't know. And obviously you've got places like um, Austria and even Belgium, actually, where vaccination rates have been lower, uptake has been lower, mm. there has been more vaccine hesitancy. Um, obviously, in the, the German-speaking countries, there have been a lot of very, very vocal activist anti-vaxxers, f- far-right intervention, far-left intervention um, uh, on it. So it, it may have something to do it with It doesn't that. necessarily mean that we're next. No, not, okay. not necessarily. No. I mean, during the pandemic, we have been very critical of the government not heeding the warnings coming from other countries, first Asia, then it was Italy and Austria and places that had the skiing happening yeah, yeah. in that early uh, 2020 outbreak. And, and we, we sort of had this great British exceptionalism, you know, what happens to Johnny Foreigner won't happen in good old Blighty, except it did again and again. So whether I think we'll see 
another sharp increase or not is hard to say. I'm not an epidemiologist, but the government is clearly concerned because it keeps bringing forward the booster rollout for ever younger mm-hmm. cohorts. It's really making a massive thing about it. And remember, they've been saying everyone needs to take lateral flow tests before they go and do their Christmas shopping and obviously stay home if you're you know, mm-hmm. even, even vaguely feeling unwell. But remember, the earlier point is that our cases are staying persistently high. We had some tailing off after the fortnight uh, of half term. That has started to rise again. We know hospitalizations follow a lag of about a fortnight after that. And now we've had very cold weather arrive this week. It's going to get even colder over the next week. And of course, there'll be much more indoor socializing anyway because of us entering the festive mm. season. Mm. So, you know, uh, and, and more and more people's immunity I, waning with their double dose having been a while ago. So I've been wondering for a while why there isn't more public angst over COVID deaths mm. in the UK. It's about mm. a thousand a week. And I did wonder whether it's vaccine related. And when you know that unvaccinated adults under 50, obviously we're not talking about people who are much older or have serious underlying conditions, but unvaccinated adults under 50 are 11 times more likely to be hospitalised and four times more likely to die than those who are fully vaccinated. So do you think that we are seeing, in a sense, that some people are, are interpreting those figures through that lens I mean, I suppose that's sort of based on the assumption that everyone is as nerdy as we are and is keeping on top of the numbers and the daily death rates. And I just I don't think there has been general angst about deaths from COVID in the UK since the vaccine rollout started. I think there's been an understandable but maybe misguided change in attitude that once people get the vaccine, they start to act like the pandemic was over and everyone's safe. And that was probably partly due to you know the fatigue of lockdown um, but it is an attitude that that continues to be actively encouraged by the UK government who keep perpetuating this false choice of health versus wealth we cannot you know lock down again or have any curbs on restrictions on on how we go about our daily lives because of the economy and considering the thousands and thousands of unnecessary deaths that this approach has undoubtedly caused it's a pretty damning indictment of the government but also frankly the media and the public for not being more mm. appalled by it Alex do you think the protests that we're seeing in Europe are evidence primarily of a, of a growing anti-vaxxer movement which now ties into all kinds of conspiracy theories because if you believe one fucking stupid thing you're more likely to believe many fucking stupid things uh, how much of it is a more sort of visceral um, and perhaps understandable frustration with the fact this bloody thing has been going on for 20 months and uh, if somebody had said to you in march 2020 the phrase fourth wave you might well have um, set fire to a police car i think it's both uh, and many other things i think it's quite a hodgepodge i think it's become a, a sort of vessel for anyone's hobby horse frustrations to be poured into anti-vaxxers and their conspiracies and their anti-establishment, far right, far left, football hooligans who just like to have a big fight in the street. Matthias Quent, who is the director of the Institute for Democracy and Civil Society in Germany. That's an amazing, it's like someone from a Dan Brown novel. Isn't it? Um, <laughs> Matthias so Quent removed he, his glasses and frowned. He looked, uh, he'd never write that well. Um <laughs> So he looked at the previous round of protests and he described them as classically populist, anti-intellectual mm. and anti-institutional. And so That's fascinating. in a weird way, they are their Brexit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, they that are really the sense. anti-expert. Everything that's wrong in my life is because of this thing. Now, we've sort of seen uh, protests in Trafalgar Square. Do you 
fear that we could have the kind of uh, scenes that you've seen in Rotterdam? No, I don't think so, because I don't think we'll see restrictions like that again. I don't think the government has the the nerve to do that. Many countries, as, as Naomi was pointing out, many countries are closing down at lower levels of infections and death than we've seen the last few months. To your point, why isn't there more of a reaction to the deaths? I think the UK became more desensitized because of that horrific 80,000 death second wave, mm. which other European countries didn't have. So we're comparing everything to that actively. Like, you know, news people will say it's still nowhere near the peak of what happened in January. Mm. Uh, when you have a country that didn't experience that massive wave and now it's getting towards what happened in January, there's yeah. more anger. Uh, in Germany, where rates are higher than ever, the health minister said everyone in the country will either be vaccinated, recovered <laughs> or dead by the end of winter. It's a memorable, blunt, isn't it? <laughs> it's a memorable phrase. Um, it's that it's slightly ominous. Is, is that a helpful way of putting it? My German is not good enough to know how that kind of thing might land on German ears. My my experience of living in Germany briefly is that people are quite direct and matter of fact. So what might seem to an English mm-hmm. speaker, you know, are the masters of saying nothing in loads of words and everything in saying nothing, maybe it lands differently. The problem with it is that it's not true. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the uh, uh, virologist Hendrik Strick uh, came out and said it's just, you know, it predicts an end to the pandemic that just won't happen because groups infect each other. So it travels in groups. Yeah, yeah. So we it puts government off from planning for next winter when it may well be still with us because it creates this perception that by spring you'll either be fully vaccinated and immune or dead. Yes. And it's just not true. This thing might come back again and again and again. Gavin, using the usual we are not epidemiologists disclaimer, um, Northern Ireland has the worst infection rate in the British Isles. Uh, It's just overtaken the Republic of Ireland. Um, and has just issued new advice on social distancing and working from home. Why does it seem to be so bad there relative to the other nations in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm off to Northern Ireland shortly because I'm, I'm doing a, a book tour with how Britain ends. And uh, it's a puzzle. All I know is that the people that I'm uh, you know, talking about the book uh, festival thing are saying uh, we're not sure. We're not sure how tight things will be and we're not sure why this is necessarily happening. But what we do know is that the NHS there is, which is utterly devolved, we have got four uh, chief medical officers in the United Kingdom, one for England, who does the UK, but one for Scotland, one for Northern Ireland, one for Wales, and all um, act slightly differently because they have slightly different political masters. And as you know, in Scotland, for example, mask wearing is mandatory in a lot more places than it is in England. Northern Ireland's got slightly different rules too, and they have decided to ask people, not tell people, but ask people to work from home where possible. And one of the things that's kind of obvious is that coronavirus, 
I was actually writing the book about how we're div- divided in so many things. And I thought, oh, coronavirus, because I was writing it at the start of the pandemic, this will bring us together. But of course, <laughs> it didn't do that, did it? I mean, you know, Scotland, Northern Ireland and, and, and Wales have gone in very, very different directions. Andy Burnham in Manchester and other big city mayors have said what Westminster does doesn't seem to work for us. So it's actually pointed up some of our, our differences. That's it. I mean, has it just made the case for devolution, not just the the other nations, but for um, for cities, you know, that a lot of mayors have become um, far more well-known, far more sort of powerful than they were before. And that the, because England, unfortunately, England stroke, uh, you know, Westminster seems to have been the kind of the last on a lot of these things. Yes, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. The, the, the England has lost out tremendously in the last 20 or so years because Actually, ever since since the, 1979, local government has been defunded. Uh, England has become much more centralised. And in the 1990s, essentially, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, in different ways, got different kinds of, uh, of setups, which are all run by proportional representation. Whereas England and Belarus are, I think, the only two countries in Europe <laughs> which have a first-past-the-post system and think it's okay. Well, it you works. Know? It works, Gavin. It just for works. Lukashenko. <laughs> it, works so for, it works for Lukashenko. <laughs> it, it clearly works for 43.6% of people who voted for our current government, which is actually 30% of the voting age population. So, <laughs> And because it works uh, for the, the Conservatives and it structurally favours the right, the current elections bill that's going through Parliament at the moment includes clauses that, that will switch the proportionate systems that are currently used to elect the mayors to first-past-the-post because <sighs> the Tories do not like the fact that so many of the metro mayors uh, and the, you know, the regional mayors like Tracy Braben are Labour. Naomi, yep, do you like first exactly, past the post? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> there is nothing to like about that. <laughs> and also, just, just while we're on that subject, because it gets me off being an epidemiologist, which I'm, I'm clearly not, um, we're also, the United Kingdom is one of only three democracies in the world that doesn't have a written constitution. And the other two are Israel and New Zealand, which have got, I think, 9 million and 5 million of population. So no wonder we're in such a mess when you have got these various other parts of the of the UK who think they can do things differently and try to do things differently. And we have a highly centralised system with no kind of real sense of exactly who should be allowed to do what. I feel quite ignorant in not knowing that Israel did not have a written constitution. Well... Now I've learned you're you're like facts man. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why I feel completely out of touch with the the current government. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, um, I want to ask everyone about their own behaviour as we approach Christmas. Uh, another COVID Christmas, as the Guardian cheerfully put it. Are you personally more cautious? Are you bracing yourself for any new restrictions, uh, Alex? Well, I, I, I'm already facing new restrictions because I have family scattered all over Europe. And, um, you know, there are millions of people around the UK who are facing that situation. So, um, What, people that you perhaps could have visited? Well, of course, yeah. If I want to be with uh, my family, my family is scattered. Well, no, I mean for the holidays. I don't know what the restrictions will be um, around the holiday season in Greece or in Belgium, where one sister is, or in Norway, where my because they're changing nephews and nieces, yeah. because yeah. they're changing all the time. So I'm facing a 
this huge mosaic of moving parts. Uh, and so we've decided we're not going to do anything this year. We're, oh. we're not going to attempt because it'll just be a lot of expense and frustration and then last minute cancellation. Also, I can say that on the Zoom call, Zoom meeting yesterday, um, I had a bit of a cough, which is now gone. Um, and Alex was very firm <laughs> that I needed to take a lateral flow test. Yeah, too right. Um, <laughs> which I which I did. Good for uh, you. Fine. Uh, Naomi? Um, I'm certainly being more cautious about uh, highly densely populated indoor pubs and clubs. So I'm trying to pick venues that I know aren't really, really tiny. You know, after work, I won't go to the pub near the office because I know it's always rammed after work. So there are so many offices around there. And I'll work for five, walk for five minutes and, and take my team to the one where there, there are a few people around. Um, or I know that there's better ventilation and that sort of stuff. So I'm definitely, you know, curtailing some of the usual festive fun and sort of, you know, no mosh pits for me this Christmas. But I also I feel we're in the minority, by the way. I, you know, I, I look around and talk to people and they seem to be planning a big oh, Christmas When bash. someone tries to get in the lift with me, I say, oh, have you got a mask before they do? And, you know, 50% of them put it on and 50% of them say, I'll wait for the next lift. The dissonance is very, very strange. So I went to see Self-Esteem at Heaven last week and it was a packed gig. It was like a standing gig. It was the first standing gig mm. I'd been to. And people were really packed in and mm. singing out loud. And then, of course, on the tube there and back, I've got my mask on. Yeah. And technically, yeah, I'm yeah. far That's less, yeah. far less vulnerable <laughs> yeah. on the tube than I was in the venue. And I think that's probably why a lot of people therefore just think, well, logically, why would I wear a mask on the tube? Mm -hmm. It's such a good yeah, it's, time. It's a weird, yeah. it's a Gavin, weird time. Gavin, it? what about you? Um, I do wear a mask on the tube, actually. What I'm worried about is my, my in-laws, who I, I get on with extremely well, live in Berlin, and I'm hoping that they're going to come here for Christmas. That's what we've got planned, and I'm just hoping that they'll be able to do so. They think we're a bit nuts. Um, they, they read the British newspapers, can't quite understand why, why, why we don't really know what we're doing or we sort of um, switch various rules and who wears masks and who doesn't. And I've kind of... Uh, for instance, uh, carol service. I was supposed to go to a, a, a big carol service. I just don't fancy being with a big crowd of people who are all singing. I just don't fancy it. So, But I do go to the pub, and I do take the mask off in order to drink beer. So um, not, <laughs> I think that's a, I've tried drinking beer with a mask on. It's, it's very it's very messy. <laughs> it's only, yeah, only a little bit leaks through. <laughs> I try a straw, maybe. Through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just kind of you poured it. Oh, <laughs> now I get it. <laughs> We're nearly at the end of the show, so it's time to find out the stories that you may have missed on Under the Radar. Uh, Naomi. So I mentioned earlier that the government had said that we all need to take lateral flow tests before we go and do our Christmas shopping. But this morning, the government quietly indicated that lateral flow tests may no longer be given out freely. Dominic Raab was on the news round uh, this morning and Sky News reported his comments. This came, obviously, you know, just days after the headlines about take lateral flow test before you go Christmas shopping. We don't yet charge people for other medical tests. They are free at the point of use. So why start charging for these during a pandemic and a winter crisis when cases are still so high? 
when lots of people who aren't that young haven't yet had their booster. And they're telling us to, to and, have them. And, and also it's surely just going to discourage people from testing at all. Yeah, so they, they were That's bad. within the space of five days, more mixed messaging from the government. On the one hand, telling us, make sure you take tests. On the other hand, saying, actually, we're fed up of paying for them. Employers and individuals are going to have to start Does, paying for Has the them change themselves. come in yet? Okay. So they still mo- order a it, couple it of It was packages. mooted in the winter plan that was published, the government's winter plan that was published in September, that at some point they would phase out free lateral flow tests. Um, and it sounds like maybe that plan is now being implemented. But no, there hasn't been an official date. For Let's it, order a go, few. Then. Go and get your free ones. Yeah, now. Sure. I think it's. Uh, I can't see anything wrong with the idea that you should have to pay to find out whether or not you have COVID. <laughs> I feel I you're see, being. Contrary. I can't see any unintended yeah. consequences <laughs> whatsoever. Alex, what news do you have? It's profoundly weird that this next story should be flying under the radar, but I have been watching rolling news all day between BBC and Sky and have not seen a single mention of it. So the leaders of the three parties that uh, um, were negotiating on Germany's Mm -hmm. new coalition have done a deal. Yes. It happened today. They have. Um, Schultz. So Olaf Schultz is the next chancellor, provided the parties approve. It's quite big news and it's been completely absent from from the news. I don't understand why, but there you are. Now our listeners at least know. And a part of the coalition agreement yep. that the um, Social Democrats, the Liberals and the Greens have signed contains a commitment to being absolutely furious with Britain if they renege on the Northern Ireland <laughs> Protocol, upholding the Good Friday Agreement oh. and being really tough on Britain Can, if it walks away from that, it. That was an easy and one that, to agree, I said. Yeah, but good on them. <laughs> Can anybody remember the name the 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 fun name then for this coalition because remember there were all kinds oh, of like with the, with flag the flags base. there was like Jamaica and I can't remember what the with the were. flags no tra- is this a traffic light one is this red green yellow yeah no ask Gavin his story and I'm going to look it up uh, I'm going to look it up while you ask Gavin, Gavin his story. you have you have German in laws I have German in laws but I have. Uh, I, I- I don't do flags. I'm sorry. <laughs> Listen, I'm partly uh, spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland. I just don't do flags. It's the wrong, <laughs> I'm the wrong person to Maybe, ask. Maybe uh, uh, Alex will look Flag. it up for us. Um, well, Gavin, uh, you give us your sort of under the radar news that some think people should. Oh uh, well, my, to. my under the, the radar news comes from the New Scientist, actually, which is you may or may not remember that Pretty Patel said that. She was going to allow the best and brightest to come to the United Kingdom by trying to get uh, celebrated academics and other leading, you know, Nobel Prize winners and others. She was going to fast track them to come to the United Kingdom, um, uh, scientists and so on. Uh, and unfortunately, according after six months of this, according to the new, uh, the, um, new scientist, the number of Nobel Prize winners, engineers, and uh, uh, incredible entrepreneurs who've applied for this scheme is zero. Um, <laughs> the University of Manchester um, <laughs> academic, uh, ouch, smart said, people. Uh, he said, "I quote: This is uh, this is one who did win the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2010." He said. The scheme itself is a joke. It cannot be discussed seriously. The government thinks if you pump up UK science with a verbal diarrhea of optimism, it can somehow become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there. 
Oh my God, I'd forgotten all about that scheme because remember that they actually had a list of um, which categories, which categories of the Academy Awards and the Brits and so on (laughs) qualified. And I think it was something like if you were like best actor, but not best supporting actor or something like that. Oh, it was it was joyous. Well, there's nobody. And the Nobel Prize winner at Manchester is Andre Geim. I think I think you pronounce his name anyway. That is another one of Priti Patel's brilliant ideas, which sadly have come to nothing. She is our best so and I our have, brightest. I have the answer for you. I yes. feel like Susie Dent in Dictionary Corner. <laughs> Which is it? Which um, is it? So it's not one of the countries, I'm afraid. It's the traffic light It is traffic one, light. Yeah. Because it's the red, green one. and yellow. Yeah. There, were, there were some fun ones on our Yeah, I'm sorry. It's not Jamaica or Kenya or any of those. <laughs> it's the basic traffic light one. Cool. And that's the show. My thanks to Alex. Thank you. Naomi. Thanks very much. And Gavin. Thank you very much. Stay tuned for our extra bit for Patreons. You'll hear a little preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Hello and best wishes from me to DJ Han Radz, Mark Davis, Gavin Bennett, Scott Napier and Simon Carter. And a big, big thank you from me to Andrew Reid, Becca Stafford, Johnny Woes, Jack Powell and Jonathan Besant. And thanks for me to Percy Plays, Arthur Miles, Rico Sakurai, Catherine Linnett-Wilson and Laura Dixon. See you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu, Naomi Smith and Gavin Esler. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. In the extra bit for Patreon backers, donors got spendy at the Tories' annual winter ball this week. <laughs> for mere 35 grand, you could have got an hour of cricket with Rishi Sunak. Dinner with Michael Gove, a mere 25,000. And karaoke with Liz Truss, just £22,000. What do you reckon her song what? is? <laughs> um, tomorrow belongs to me. <laughs> um, what else are you going to spend that money on? Social care? Um, Gavin, first of all, do you know what the deal is here? Like, does, a, does an auction bid have a different status to just a straight donation? Um, or is it, is it it's just a bit of fun? I have absolutely no idea, but I cannot imagine the bit of fun that involves karaoke with Liz Truss. I'm sorry, but if that was a prize in a raffle, I would uh, pretend I didn't have a ticket. But it's like the old joke that, 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 you know, first prize is an hour of karaoke with Liz Truss and second prize is two hours of karaoke with Liz Truss. (laughs) She was behind me in the queue at Avocado the other day, which is a cafe chain and she was complaining about the length of the queue and why and she said to her, one of her aides she was like why is it taking so long today why why is it you know why are the queues so bad and i just turned around and said i think it's something to do with the government's terrible immigration policy <laughs> <laughs> oh man she just left the goal open there that's uh Naomi, do you think these days are actually fun um, just yeah, oh God, no! I think I, I, I actually think they probably most of them don't ever actually happen. And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast.
if you'd like to hear more Oh God, What Now every week and you, you really do want to hear more this week uh, <laughs> without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our new weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs>